You know, I miss doing this and, and having to do it several times to get people to kind of quieten down. Yeah, I miss that. I miss people. Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. We hope you are well. Um, a few announcements as usual. Last week, we made a statement about why some people are having difficulties with live stream, and that's simply because so many are on the internet at this particular time during the shutdown. But the feedback we got last week was that very few there were no problems. So I hope that remains the case for you today. Um, Holly, mm -hmm. tell us about next week. Okay, so this time next week, we'll be joined um, via Zoom by two folks, Cleve Tensley, a friend of mine, and Natalie Negrete, who works here at St. Paul's with Bay Esperanza to talk a little bit about how um, this time is affecting vulnerable populations. It'll be, um, we'll zoom them in from the heavens and enjoy a conversation that you guys will get to witness. So uh, join us next week. And can I also mention the art auction? Oh, I wish you would. Okay, so to remind you guys, we are also looking to raise funds in our general fund that we can give away to nonprofits and to those in need uh, for especially frontline worker, workers and those who have been affected most heavily by the COVID-19. So we have two options. One, you can go to the St. Paul's, you can go to the Ordinary Life website, click on donate, which will lead you to a page where you have to fill in the memo for Ordinary Life and can donate there. And next week after Sunday's talk, on the 18th, we'll be launching a live auction or an art auction of some people who have donated pieces to be sold for a good cause. People um, like Richard, um, William's mom, <laughs> uh, myself, Brooke, Frida, all have pieces up that um, we hope to raise money to give away for a good cause. You're being so. too modest. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just part you, of it. You showed some of your artwork, or what you generally do, and uh, people wondered if they could get it, and you said that you would donate a piece, and one thing led to another, and yeah. there we are. So now we've got several people donating some pieces. So, well, that, I went and saw the test website uh -huh. for the art. Uh-huh. Will that be accessed through the Ordinary Life website? So what we'll do is we'll send out like an email through Constant Contact to say um, that the auction is live, click on this link, start your bidding, and it'll stay up for approximately 48 hours so that people can bid on it during that time, and then um, we'll get the pieces to you. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you aren't signed up for Constant Contact on Ordinary Life, now would be a good time, time if to you want it. to participate. And if you don't yeah. know how to do that, uh, you can send me an email through um, the website, and I will make sure that, that you get signed up. Yeah. You know, I was uh, uh, had uh, experience of some real genuine guilt this week. Mm. I have been complaining about how much more demanding life is right now for me mm. and for my colleagues sure. who are doing all this stuff on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And then I realized that's really whiny because we're not in a, a ICU. No, we're alive and we're well and we have resources and we have a house and it's still hard to be on Zoom all day. It is. Both can be true. Both, both are true at the yeah. same time. So. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. And then uh, the week after that, the hot seat. We're going to do a thing that we're calling the hot seat. <laughs> Bill has no idea what questions I'm going to ask him. Yeah, this is not my favorite. I'll get some good ones from Sherry. Thing to do, but um, Holly has been gently pressuring. Uh, sure. Or inviting. Inviting <laughs> me to come with no preparation, yeah. just to show up. This is very difficult for me to do. Well, I think it's actually difficult for both of us. We both lean into our, our headspace pretty easily and we want to make sure we're prepared. It, and just to honor you all these years, it takes hours of work every week to prepare this. And we spend a lot of time talking. So when we're doing it individually, double that, right? Yeah. And, and we spend a lot of time doing it. It's not that we don't like spending the time. I actually enjoy it. And as you have said before, it's, it's invigorating. Yeah. It invigorates my spiritual practice. It invigorates my relationship with you. And it challenges me in different ways. But I, 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 we, we have such great conversations on the fly that I think it'll be fun to just see what, what comes out. <laughs> well, thank you to John, Olivia, Tim, William, who are the folks behind the scenes that make this uh, happen today. I hope your practice is going well. I heard Richard Orr say one time that he thought it would be good if churches just closed their doors for a year. And um, that would kind of force people into uh, an opportunity to work on their own spiritual and contemplative practices. I don't know that people are doing that, but I do think that your spiritual practice will sustain you during this time. At any rate, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Oh, and happy Mother's Day. Thank you. I meant to say that. Thanks. And I hope people can recall what we said the last couple of weeks about you don't have to be a mother or a female to be nurturing. Right. Yeah. You don't have to be a, a mother or a female to have to embody sort of the sacred feminine. Right. It embodies you or it already. <laughs> so I, I uh, those of you who tune in early enough, uh, like at 930, know that uh, I like cartoons. I have a huge collection of cartoons and I like to put them up. They're part of my um, way I fulfill this, the obligation we have to be, to be happy. <laughs> I, I, I have this cartoon that um, shows two scientific explorers in the jungle and they have come up on a clearing and in it they see four elephants in a circle. <clears throat> And the elephants are playing poker, having drinks, and smoking cigars. And one explorer says to the other, this fundamentally changes everything we know about elephants. <laughs> I think that cartoon kind of encapsulates what I'm thinking about where we are theologically and religiously. We are having to rethink everything because of evolutionary cosmology. And that's why Holly's here. <laughs> because this is your area of expertise. Beca working on it, right? On it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 
What is it? Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask. Um, evolutionary cosmology is um, essentially a way of seeing and relating to the universe as an ongoing story, as an unfolding story that we're part of. And it includes scientific discovery, astronomy, geology, biology with human insights as part of that story. So it points to this kind of continual cycle of birth, death, rebirth over the course of 14 billion years as far as we know in which the human is a conscious offspring. So Brian Swim says, the universe is most spectacularly creative realm we know of and allows the dynamics of creativity to come alive in our own lives. And a term that I think is original to Brian Swim and Carolyn Cook at my school is autocosmology, which is what is the role of the self? How does the individual experience the embedded nature of being in the cosmos? You know, about two years ago, I think it was 2018, I, um, under the influence of people like Ilya Delio and Michael Morewood, and by the way, we, we're putting back on the table the possibility of doing a webinar with Michael Morewood from Australia, and we'll keep you informed about that. It just won't be May 20th. It'll be probably beyond that. It will be beyond right. that, because we have a lot to make sure that we can make it work. Mm -hmm. and. Um, We'll have to live into the dynamic that webinars are probably not as satisfying as in-person yeah. kind of things. Yeah. But I still would like for people to have an experience of Michael because Ilya and Michael, Brian Swim, whom you introduced me to, and others, got me to thinking uh, the original phrase, rethinking everything I got from Morewood. Mm -hmm. And um, that means everything. Everything. In light of this that you see on the screen, mm -hmm. we have to rethink our understanding of God, of prayer, of all of that. The way that the church thinks, the Christian church thinks that God only spoke during the last 2,000 years when God's been speaking for right. billions. Right. So I came up with this phrase to say that um, we're living our lives between the no longer and the not yet. I quoted you in one of my papers. You're quoting me? Mm-hmm, saying we're in between the no longer and the not yet. You'll get a PhD for sure. <laughs> in fact, it's already pre-done. <laughs> so one of the things that you see going on in our culture is that this very reality is just scaring the bejabbers out of mm -hmm. a lot of people. And a lot of people want to go back to the way things were which is not going to go, well, not going to go happen. It's not the nature of time. It's not going to happen. And um, this sort of divisiveness is what really the cosmology is seeking to teach us to heal, mm -hmm. that, that we're all one, which is kind of the thing that we're going to be talking about yeah. today. So the, the past few weeks, we have been shaping these talks in light of shadow aspects that have our culture in its grip, one of them patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And as my union analyst said, we bring things out of the shadow so that we can be in charge of them rather than they being in charge of us. It's not like we get rid of these things because right. they're embedded in the DNA uh, of our culture. Now, if you are a person who regularly attends Ordinary Life, either virtually or 
physically. Um, you are aware that the Jesus agenda has been hijacked by right-wing political and religious movements. Instead of genuine patriotism, what's growing in this country uh, is an exaltation of narrow-minded prejudice, racism, homophobia, and I'm wondering why our leaders don't call it out, why they don't call racism out. Why isn't racism, for example, a deal breaker? Maybe white nationalism has always lived just beneath the surface of our culture, but it seems in the last few years that it's really become much more explicit. It's become, it's been given permission to become so. We're in maybe a period of backlash, right? Of, of fear coming to the surface. So one of the documents that we are using, not the only one uh, to be sure, to base these talks on is a document that was published about two years ago uh, around Lent time. It's signed by an impressive number of Christian leaders um, across the spectrum, Catholic, Protestant, uh, African-American, Asian, Latino, Caucasian, um, male, female, and we're going to talk today about the very first one of those things you see uh, in the Reclaiming Jesus document. I'm going to read it. We believe each human being is made in God's images and likeness. Racial bigotry is a brutal denial of the image of God in some of the children of God. Therefore, we reject the resurgence of white nationalism and racism in our nation on many fronts, including the highest levels of political leadership. We reject white supremacy and commit ourselves to help dismantle the systems and structures that perpetuate white preference and advantage. Any doctrines or political strategies that use racist resentments, fears, or language must be named a public sin. Now, this is me speaking. I think the truest test of who your neighbor is is shown in how you treat somebody who's different from you in whatever way. In 25 short years, America will be made up of a majority of minorities. And I'm wondering how white people are going to deal with it when we are no longer the majority. So simply put, racism is disobedience to Jesus. We cannot remain blind to this. And I said to you mm -hmm. that as soon as I said that, that we were going to lose people, right. that people were going to turn us off, yeah. that there are people um, in the Ordinary Life audience and elsewhere who say, I don't need to hear about this. I already know about this. Mm -hmm. I'm not racist. What am I supposed to do about this? Let's talk about something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it brings up for sure a lot of um, anxiety, um, some defensiveness, some, um, some pain too, because it is actually a big pain that I think we, and I, by we I mean Americans, have to really sit with, and it's a really uncomfortable truth to sit with. One of my um, uh, podcasts that I often listen to is with a Buddhist psychologist, Tara Brock, and she has this really helpful process that she calls RAIN. And she uses it in almost any moment of trigger. And 
what she teaches is that rain is a process of recognizing, so noticing what is happening, noticing what's happening in the body or in the mind, allowing what is happening to just be as it is, and then investigating what's underneath it with a gentle, curious attention, and then nurturing what's there with care and love. And she has this kind of practice of putting her hand on her heart and saying, may this too serve awakening. Um, I find that really helpful, and I think we can stay at any one of these at R, A, I, or N for however long we need to, because each one sort of successively invites the next layer of, of peeling back what, what is at the heart of my anxiety about this topic, or why am I triggered here? You know, this is also a central practice that Pima Chodron teaches. Ah, well, yeah. there you go. <laughs> and, and the way that she talks about it is that um, you say to yourself and to your mind, mm -hmm. just stay. Mm -hmm. Just stay. Just stay. Yeah. Don't want off. Just stay. Yeah. Whatever it is that you're with, Yeah. just stay just with stay. it. Don't judge it, but just keep it out there in front of you and just stay with it. And these things, these difficulty or the shadow, if you will, are our best teachers if we just stay. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the person who irritates you can be your best teacher at <laughs> yes. times. I love you kids. <laughs> now, I know um, you and I have had kind of a disagreement about this use of the word colorblind. Maybe. Say more. What, what is your what well, is the perceived I, disagreement? Well, I think that um, I wanted to tell you where the origin of this came from. Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, mm -hmm. I began to uh, have a response to clients of mine who would complain that they would ask a certain behavior of a parent, a partner, a child, a friend, and that wouldn't be coming. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand why that was. And uh, begin to, to understand myself that what they were asking for from the person in their life, the person in their life simply didn't have to give them. Right. And the metaphor that I came up with is it's like these people are colorblind. Mm -hmm. They cannot see what you want them to see. Right. And, and I don't know whether you remember this from grammar school, at, le oops, at least I was taught this. Um, this is one of the, I cannot pronounce the name of the color charts that detect for color blindness, but what do you see? Me? Uh, uh, a 71. Okay. Is that one of the options? Did I pass? Uh, <laughs> I think you can see a 74 or 21. Oh, I see the 74 also. Yes. Yeah. It's either 74 or 21. Oh. So <laughs> I, sh I shudder to look back uh -huh. in my growing up. I grew up in... Tennessee, um, born back when there were dinosaurs, and uh, we we all the Jim Crow laws were in right. would affect. We had separate water fountains, separate waiting rooms, uh, separate accommodations, um, and I didn't see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I began to see it as time passed, and one of the things I noticed, uh, like in the dime store where I love to go hang out is that the colored water fountain was cleaner than the white. Mm. Well, you know, I think some, a sentiment I sometimes hear from people who grew up in that era is, 
we had our place and they had theirs, which is mostly what I have heard said mostly by white folks. And everyone sort of was fine. But I, my thought is if you ask people who were oppressed, I think they would have said something very different. No, we're not fine. <laughs> well, they may not have yeah. felt free to say that. Right, right. So back in his, I think it was his Palm Sunday sermon, our senior minister here, Dr. Jeff McDonald, was talking about how from our vantage point, we can look back on the story of the crucifixion and can be very judgmental of the people who executed Jesus. Mm -hmm. And in that connection, Jeff brought up the fact that he had seen a historical piece where uh, there were postcards of lynchings where in the background, white men smoking cigars were laughing. Mm -hmm. They clearly were colorblind to murder taking place right in front of them. Right. And they had some way of seeing or processing that made it okay. Right. I, I mean, speaking of the rain process, just hearing that makes my heart beat a little bit faster, mm -hmm. right? Because these are these sort of cultural icons and pictures that um, exist and have existed for a long time in our culture. And I told you about going to the Equal Justice Initiative and seeing the enlarged postcard of the mother and son hanging from a bridge full of white folks looking on. And you know those images are in our psyche and they're in the psyche of anyone who's ever spent any time in America because it's part of our lineage, whether we turn to look at it or not. And I, I think one of the things that makes talking about this so hard is that none of us think we are racist. We don't participate, not all of us. Some of us actively choose to participate in groups that they are knowingly racist, but I would say that most of us don't. Most of us aren't members of the KKK, right? Or aren't um, pursuing an agenda of racial bigotry and segregation or Jim Crow. How, that's still alive in our country. I don't wanna pretend that it's not, but it, it, it's not what we hear on the surface. So the, the question is, well, if I'm not racist, how can something exist with no actors, right? If, if there's no people acting as racist, how can this thing still be alive? But I think it will actually exist as long as we continue to minimize it or say, it's all better, it's fine, we're fine now. As long as we continue to minimize that it is still an issue, it will still exist. Do you think that things I read in the news or hear about called voter suppression mm -hmm. are racist? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I do. Um, you know, I think actually to, to acknowledge that it exists, I love Ta-Nehisi Coates' comparison to, he said in an interview with Krista Tippett, you know, black folks in America, we've known we've been in this cage. We've been in it for a long time. And white folks are just waking up to the fact that they're in the cage with us. And she was really like, but uh, make it better. And he was like, just welcome to the cage until we can sort of I can call you, you, and you can call me, me. We're going to stay in this cage until we can really see what we need to see. And, and you, if we can't see that, we're colorblind. Right. Okay. Yeah. So James Baldwin says, this is wonderful, because this is from 1961, that wrestling with these things is an act of love, and that love is growing up. So speaking of an adult faith, 
in wrestling with these difficult things, we're kind of growing up, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, I'm mostly a realist, and I'm more optimistic than I am pessimistic. But I believe that we really need to wrestle with these things in order to really live into our hopes and to see change happen in a real way. I, 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 a man that I really respect, an older white man, not you, <laughs> there are other older white men in my life, <laughs> once said um, in a broad forum, um, racism is on its way out, sexism is on its way out, homophobia is on its way out. And I thought, oh my gosh, that he's, that's not right. <laughs> and I, I texted another friend, a black man, and said, what do you make of this? And he had some choice words and said, that's asinine. He, as a black man, could feel the colorblindness of those words, mm -hmm. whereas the person saying them was being effusive with hope, right? I asked Josh, um, who is probably one of the more optimistic people I know, I said, I said, do you think hope is a privilege? And he said, no. He said, hope lies with the dispossessed. Hope stays alive in those who have known what it's like to not have it. And James, I, I love James Baldwin. I think he's such a wonderful cultural critic, um, a, a philosopher, really, and such a keen eye for observing the American psyche. He, he wrote that something along the lines of black Americans believe more strongly in the ideals of America than anyone. And this quote from 1961, whether I like it or not, or whether you like it or not, we are bound together forever. We are part of each other. What is happening to every Negro in the country at any time is also happening to you. There is no way around this. I am suggesting that these walls, these artificial walls, which have been up so long to protect us from something we fear, must come down. I think that what we really have to do is create a country in which there are no minorities. <laughs> this is 1961 and we're still, this is still relevant. For the first time in the history of the world, the one thing that all Americans have in common is that they have no other identity apart from the one that is being achieved on this continent. And when I read that, I was reading some of his work last week, um, I thought, well, what is the identity we want to co-create? What is it that we want to imagine that's possible? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um. Well, I have a couple of responses. One is it's real clear why when Jesus spoke about his vision of an empowering community, he spoke to the people who were at the bottom because they could get it. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that latched on to that hope and possibility. Mm -hmm. They had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. they, were already at, they were already expendable. Right. And I think that <clears throat> probably is why Christian spirituality got adapted the way that it did among slaves to create a vision of hope and possibility of a future for them. Yeah, well, th James Cone says that, right? Like, Jesus was for blacks in America. Jesus was for blackness. Jesus was for those who suffered. Right. And that is the religion that we have come to follow. And we, but we've reshaped it to fit our vision and more of, of power and individualism. And yet, 
you know, there's that great line by Martin Luther King Jr. who said <clears throat> that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Yeah, I would say in most places that's probably still true. Yeah, there's, you know, when I, so we were discussing kind of what, what's in our psyches as we sit here today, what sort of informed some of our upbringings, right? When I was little, I had this um, Uncle Remus record that I listen to, I probably listen to that record every day. So much so that it um, probably wore down to nothing but static at some point. And um, I thought Uncle Remus was a real person and telling real, like his stories. But Uncle Remus is, you know, fictional character created by um, a white author in the early 1900s, a, a little boy who was an apprentice to a plantation owner. So he himself was learning how to work on a plantation. Mm -hmm. But as a little white boy, he had the privilege to run around the plantation. And he sat at, in the slave cabins and listened to old stories, which have roots in African folklore tradition and have animals as characters and animals have personalities. You know, there's Br'er Fox, who's wily. There's Br'er Rabbit, who's tricky. <laughs> um, there's Br'er Bear. And there's Uncle Remus, who kind of tells the stories of all of these characters. Car baby. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I think, you know, on the one hand, we think, oh, well, these are just folklore. Um, they, they lift up a folklore from Africa and from the black American slave. But, but on the other hand, they were um, appropriated by a white man who made them his and then profited from them. These were, along with Mark Twain's writing the most popular books in, in the time. Did you see Song of the South? Um, yes, a long time ago, when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember when it came out, Yeah. and you couldn't barely get in the theater. Yeah. It was so popular. Yeah. So, and, uh, um, before I was six years old, mm -hmm. I mean, it, I'm blessed or cursed with a memory that I can remember things from when I was two. Mm-hmm. I know this is before I was six years old because it was before we moved from Portland, Tennessee to Columbia, Tennessee. One of my favorite books was Little Black Sambo. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I love that book. And you know the story. Mm -hmm. Little Black Sambo has been given by his parents um, whose mother is um, Black Mumbo and his father is Black Jumbo. This wonderful outfit of new shoes, colorful pants, colorful top, colorful umbrella. And he is chased by these tigers. And in order to get the tigers to leave him alone, he takes off all his clothes piece at a time and gives them to the tigers. And then the tigers get in a fight with each other about who's going to get the clothes. Yeah. And they chase each other around this tree and they chase each other so fast that they turn into butter. Mm -hmm. And so Little Black Sambo retrieves his clothes and collects the butter and takes it home to his mother who makes pancakes mm -hmm. for him. I love that story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think on the one hand, I was asking Josh also, did you ever, did you listen to Little, to Uncle Remus? And he was like, yeah. You know, and we just kind of both had this realization that what stories like this do, even if the intent we don't know their intent. We can't speculate. We, you can read things that say the intent was not to be racist, but the impact is 
that it preserved a certain kind of caricature and a certain kind of stereotype that persisted and, and in many ways still persists, right? This sort of one-dimensional um, idea of, of blackness and for Uncle Remus it was either that sort of like trickster slave trying to run away or the happy jolly, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's just so flat. What I read on the on Wikipedia yeah. about the story Little Black Samo was written by a woman who actually the story originally was written about a child in India. Mm -hmm. I read that too. And uh, it became so popular, it's still very popular in China and has no racial tones there whatsoever, according to the Wikipedia. See, it's a very homogenous culture too. Yeah. In other words, it, it doesn't have a culturally diverse um, I have a friend who said that one of the brands of toothpaste in China is it looks like the mouth of a little black sambo with big white teeth and like that's like the most common toothpaste in China and, I, and, you, and she said until I got to America because she was Chinese born um, she didn't realize the implications of that she would just she had no context for what that meant. What happened with the story is um, that it was so popular that people ripped it off. Mm. They republished it with cartoons or illustrations that were stereotypes mm -hmm. of black people. Mm -hmm. And then soon, Sambo, Jumbo, and Mumbo became pejorative terms yes. for African-American people. Mm -hmm. So it was appropriated by white people to use as a racial slur. Yeah, yeah. And it was a children's story. It's what I grew up with. Right. So when we grow up with these in our in our backgrounds, we too are affected by the implied messages, right? The implications. So, in, and when we talk about sort of peeling back these layers, those are the kinds of things we have to look at. What was my first lesson about? me as a white person or little black Sambo as a black boy, right? We, we, we have to go that far back to sort of peel back our layers. Well, you asked me a question when we were working on this this, this week about my own racial awakening or mm. becoming aware of my own colorblindness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure. Um, I grew up in a family that was um, very loving and all, all that sort of stuff, and I'm very grateful. But my parents were both extremely racist beings. Um, and my grandparents, I, there, there is a scene that's kind of embarrassing to tell about, but my grandfather and his two brothers ran a general store on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. Mm -hmm. And the, by general store, I mean it was just like you see in the movies, a general store. They sold plows and guns and fine china and seeds to plant in the garden, everything. Yeah. They had everything. And it was quite successful. And so my, my grandfather, the three brothers decided that the business was so successful that they would replicate it in other places. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather moved and his wife moved from... Portland, Tennessee, which is about 40 miles north of Nashville, to Columbia, Tennessee, which is about 40 miles south of Nashville. Mm -hmm. And their housekeeper moved with them. They got her, her name is Flory, a um, shack, really, 
very basic house to live in in Columbia in a place that was um, had three names. One I can't say on the air. The other was called Colored Town. The other was called Happy Hollow. Mm -hmm. And she was, Flory was black. And Flory yeah. was black. She moved with them. And um, it was like she had no choice. Mm -hmm. That's slavery. It's an, ind it's an indentured servant. An servitude. indentured servant. Right. But it was years before I went, holy oh. smoke, wow. Yeah. The, uh, she had no, uh, that's, not, that's not right. Yeah, you know? yeah. And my father had a black woman in, living in his house charged with taking care of his kids. Yeah. And, and um, I think one of the things that helped me with colorblindness was that I fell in love with that woman. Sure, and and it's and that's an important relationship that you've mentioned a lot, and it's also um, important to notice that you probably didn't engage in her world the way she engaged in in your world, in the sense that she left her world every day to come to your world, presumably, right? I and can remember. Yeah. One time as a child when my parents went out of town and I went and stayed in her house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Slept in her bed mm -hmm. with her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was, she was a mom. She was a mom, mom. yeah, in, yeah. In, in that particular sense. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's so complex, right? And I, one of the things you're bringing up is um, that in order to peel these layers away, to understand what we understood as children and beyond about our sort of position um, and what we, our view of others is, is that we have to leave the field. We were talking about this a little bit. And in Jungian psych psychology, it's individuating, right? It's, it's becoming your own person. And so there are, when I think about you know, reshaping an identity, I think about what does that mean then to leave the field? And I wanna mention James Baldwin again, because again, I just think he's brilliant. <laughs> I, I just, you know, let me back up. Looking at these books in our childhood is not trying to lodge racism in the past, but it, because it's very easy to say like, that was old, those were the, that was then, but these books are still on the shelf, right? And Josh and I are forever in search of books that have um, characters that are uh, boys or, or young people that might represent our children. They're harder, much harder to find than the, a white protagonist, right? And I think, so, so we're, still, we're still needing some dimension in how we represent um, non-white kids, non-white people in literature and in American consciousness. And, you know, I think we mentioned these because of how these types of stereotypes, again, worked into our psyches as kids, as and how we had to learn something different by engaging with plurality, by engaging with diversity in our lives. And I think so many of us don't have that opportunity to engage with diversity or don't know how to have that opportunity to engage with it in a genuine way um, because of the neighborhoods we live in or the churches we go to. As you say, these are some of the most segregated places. And so how do we do this? And I think, you know, some of it is by reading. Some of it is by engaging critically with, um, with, with cultural ethics, engaging critically with our own imaginations and with our own sort of shadow. And you know it's true on one hand that some things have gotten better, so to speak. I hear that a lot, but things have gotten so much better. 
you know, we interracial marriage, it's legal. It was legal only about 10 years before I was born. And we ended legal segregation. We passed civil rights laws. But all of these things are still having to be fought for, mm -hmm. you know? And with these forward steps, people are still mistreated and murdered just because of their race. Or they're kept away just because of their race. And I think to me that means that so maybe we've put some things in place to help us change, but it's our hearts and minds that still need work. So James Baldwin, again, I'm going to bring him back to the field. He, he was so brilliant. He wrote not only from the perspective of a black man, but also from the perspective of a gay man. And he was, you know, this social critic who leans into a lot of philosophy and a lot of theory. And the, one of the favorite essays I've read recently is Going to Meet the Man. And it's about a, um, we see this white person, we, we, we see it travel through time from his life as a little kid to his life as an adult. And he's, he's a little white boy growing up in the South who is sort of caught up in the fervor of that day in the early 1900s. Um, and he looks to, of course, who he has around him for how he should feel, how he should respond. As a little kid, he had um, a friend who was a little black boy that he played with. But in the story, we see him traveling to um, a picnic with anticipation, a community picnic. And he's about seven or eight years old. And when he gets there, the picnic is a public lynching. Mm. And at seven or eight years old, he, he's there and he's noticing the fervor and the excitement and the like, power in the group. And so he's looking to the group, his field, for how he should feel. And as a seven or eight year old boy, he has no option to leave the field. This is, it's not a matter of choice at that age, it's a matter of survival, right? As a little boy, he can't leave the family. He either gets to participate in it or suffer through it. <laughs> And so he participates in it. And that, of course, impacts the rest of his growing up. And then we jump forward, and, and Baldwin has this amazing ability to help us feel sorry for the little boy, to feel compassion for him, because he's caught up. But then he, we jump to when he's a grown-up. And as a grown-up, he's, he's a police officer beating a young black man. Mm. And we're going, how could he do that? But it's because he never left the field. He was colorblind. Yeah. It's, it's, an, an, it's an act of total colorblindness. I right? want to be clear that yeah. when, when I use the word colorblind, right. I'm not saying that we should not see people of color. Well, yeah, we'll get to that, right? I think, I think that's the damaging way that colorblind is still right. used today. Right. What he was was almost blind to his own color. Right. The power, the, this, this white police officer, the power of his own color, right? And he was, he was brutally leaning into that, the power. And in the story, we still see in his psyche him wrestling with this. But I think, you know, what we recognize is that he never left the field. He never individuated. And, you know, in, in many ways, even though 30 years ago, or 30 years prior, interracial marriage was legalized before Josh and I were married, but he and I left the field on some level. It, interracial marriage was not common in the neighborhoods we grew up in. It was not common in either one of our families. You know, we, we had to go, we're, we're doing this anyway, <laughs> right? right? And I think 
when we, it was kind of funny actually when we came back to work, we got married on a weekend, we went back to work on a Tuesday, <laughs> and suddenly we're Mr. and Mrs. Hudley, and our students were kind of like, uh, how, what, why are there two Hudleys here? Before there were just one, are you guys related? And they could more easily believe my sarcastic joke that um, we were anomalous twins than we were married. <laughs> this was in 2006. You well, know, that they yeah. were like, wait, you're married? Because even in, in their worlds, that didn't happen very often. So, so we did leave our field. And, um, you know, yeah, we situate through these things all the time. But not being able to recognize how colorblindness is actually damaging, this keeps racial terror alive. And I think we were, you know, just recently we were talking about the photo or the video of a black man uh, I have a lot of emotion about this, um, named, sorry, <laughs> Ahmad Arbery, who was jogging in February, and he was tailed and shot by an ex-cop and his son. Intentionally tailed <laughs> and terrorized. He was murdered. He was murdered and shot and killed because he looked like a criminal. And I think when we get back to the stereotypes that we were sort of presented with, like Uncle Remus was, you either had to be the jolly black man or the wily black man. These very flat ways of seeing black men. And, you know, we still, that, that is in our psyche. And I just think, yes, I'm emotional about this. And yes, I am, and it's very real to me that uh, a black man can be a target. It's even realer to Josh. Right? We, think, we think we're immune to it, but I, I think when it happens, the, the victim is so often raped through the coals of the media. You know, so we've seen this with so many young black men who have been murdered. Well, and a, and he, a bit of that in yeah. the reporting on yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. He um, smoked pot once, so what? <laughs> you know? He you, was charged for shoplifting. Or it, but, you know, so we think somehow that that justifies our behavior. But we forget to look at how the behavior of these two, this white man and his son, an ex-cop and his son, we don't look at their behavior, right? We don't look at what, what were they caught up in that triggered this. And you know, I think we've created this society where we equate black men more readily with criminals and we call them exceptions when they're not. You had mentioned to me before that you have some anxiety if Josh goes out late at night to walk the dog. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, when Josh and I were first talking, it, so the video of his shooting, of Ahmad's shooting just came out last Friday, um, or one week ago Friday. And um, when Josh was first telling me about it, I thought he was talking about something that happened in our neighborhood. And I was, I mean, I visibly was kind of shaken. And then at the, by the end of the story, I got that he was talking about another neighborhood. And what I felt was, oh, thank God, that's not our neighborhood. But I immediately had to snap to and go, it could be. It could be. And, and I think that reality, I don't think either one of us let the, the fear control us. But there's always this like thin thread of awareness that that is possible. In his online pastor's message this week, our senior pastor, Jeff McDonald, talked about a black man from the Congo who came to Texas to go to Lon Morris and then finished his schooling elsewhere. And for a while, this man, whose name is Dan, lived with Jeff and Lene. Now he is uh, an engineer 
living and working in Nashville, Tennessee, mm. and is about to get married. And Dan posted this on his Facebook page. Mm -hmm. I am blessed and fortunate to have family, friends who work hard and live in nice parts of town. Like Ahmad Arbery, Arbery, I run and am black. Like Amon Arbery, I have run in nice neighborhood. Like Amon Arbery, neighbors have paused or stopped when they saw me approaching. Like Ahmad Arbery, I have waved hello to them. Unlike Ahmad Arbery, I am alive and well today. Unlike Amon Arbery, I hope to run again tomorrow. Unlike Ahmad Arbery, I hope the neighbors will not assume I am a burglar. Unlike Ahmad Arbery, I hope they will wave back and say hello. Unlike Ahmad Arbery, I hope to make it back home, sweaty, tired, and alive. I run, and I am black. I hope I won't be killed for sharing the road with you. Yeah. Wow. There's, um, I mean, that's just kind of one of those uncomforts we have to sit with and just allow, and um, it's hard because we do want to think we're past all that. We're not. We're not. And um, this is Ahmad and his mom, mm -hmm. Wanda Cooper. And I love this quote that his coach from high school said about him. He's one of those students you don't forget because his smile was so infectious. His smile made you smile. And you know, a lot of times with really good intent, I hear people, I'm just going to say mostly white people say, when I, when, when, when I bring these things up as like we've got a sort of cultural problem we need to bring up, when sometimes when we bring it up in a majority white audience, sometimes the response is, I'm so sorry you have to deal with that. And I know the intent is good, right? I'm, I'm sorry this is an issue that you have to talk about with your sons. But I think we have to learn to see it as all of our issue our collective issue. I'm sorry, this is an issue we have to deal right. with. Right. What, what can we do to deal with this issue? Not just me and Josh as parents of brown boys, not just Josh as a black man, but all of us. And I would even say most especially white America, right? Well, <laughs> I, I, I want to put this picture yeah. up and, and let you all look at it for a while. I told Holly, this is Josh and Holly. When is this? No, no, that's Josh and his mom. Josh and his mom. Yeah. That's the only picture I have of Josh and Janice of them together, and that's them hugging on our wedding day. And what, look at Josh's smile. Like, I mean, it's because he just married me, but, but you know, the, I put these up because this is me with my boys and Josh with his mom. And in sharp contrast to the picture of Ahmad with his mom, I hope I never have to put these pictures up oh. for the same reason. The, the picture of you and the boys is award-winning. <laughs> I mean, really, it is a fabulous picture. Yeah. And I got to say, I had a part in this. I married these two people. You did? It was yeah. It a fun thing to yeah, do. Yeah, I'm sure that was interesting looking out. <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me say, um, I got on the Internet, oh, some time ago when we were first doing this series and I could see kind of where we were headed mm -hmm. and uh, some Google search led me to 18 books every white American needs to read about racism and I'm pleased to say I think I've read them all. That's good. And um, they're hard. Mm -hmm. They're hard to read. Yep. And 
when somebody says, okay, what can I do about this? One of the things I would suggest is um, taking a clue from Diane Schinke, somebody who comes to this class and who took the um, rescuing Jesus, reclaiming Jesus document and did an eight-week course on it here at St. Paul's, mm -hmm. a discussion yeah. group, small right. discussion group. Get one of these books. Right. And um, get the book, um, Sermon to White America, Tears We Cannot Stop mm -hmm. by Michael Dyson, mm -hmm. professor of history, I think. Yes, at Georgetown. Georgetown. I yeah. think that's what I think he is. History, yeah. Brilliant yeah. guy mm -hmm. and a mm -hmm. really well-written book. And get a discussion group right. going. Get some of your friends around and uh, talk about it. If you could put together an interracial group, that'd be even better. With willingness. Yeah, I think I, I I do think there's a level sometimes of, of of exhaustion when we ask people of color to teach us, teach me about your experience with racism, right? Because I think we have to be willing to look at our experience with racism first, and then you know I don't know if there's a linear path. You know, I'm I'm fortunate to have a really sort of diverse group of friends in my life. It's a really mesh, mesh pot, I guess, of, of really close friends. And of course, the man I'm married to, and he and I um, talk through a lot of things all of the time. But, um, uh, but if you don't have that, I don't think we can force it, but I think we can still read. And I still think we can sort of expand our minds through engaging with the questions. Um, and then I think those things begin to come. The more we start to peel away our color blindness, the more we can see in color and live in color, you know? So, you know, what, I think one of the things about saying, I don't see color, which people say all the time, and then they'll say, oh, but what a nice pink shirt you have on today, right? Yeah, you do see color. Yeah. So what, what that means is, you know, what, this implies that what we also don't see violence done to people of color, that we don't see them. And if so, if we're not willing to see color, then we're not seeing the full picture. And um, we live in a full picture where the past impacts our present and it will continue to impact our future if we don't, if we don't look. You know, you, uh, coming back to the question you asked me during the week about my own uh, awakening about colorblindness, um, I think I was very, very fortunate not only to have had Ruth Harlan in my life, but that I graduated from high school on the eve of the Supreme Court decision about desegregation. And there was a line in the sand. You had to say what, what was right and what was wrong about this. Mm -hmm. And it was just clearly, and I have never been one to pull this card out of the deck and play it, uh, but it's clearly that if you're going to follow Jesus, there's, a, just a pl there's no other place to come down. Right. And that everybody's welcome at the table. Yeah. And uh, so when I went away to um, college, it was called then, not a university, um, I got immediately involved in uh, the speech club, uh, the debate society. Mm -hmm. And my debating partner, who turned out to become a English professor at North Texas, uh, this is in Tennessee, he was in an interracial marriage in the sense that he was married to a Korean woman. Mm -hmm. 
And nobody, believe me, nobody in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I bet. Was, was married to a Korean to woman. Married right. to a Korean woman. Yeah. And I thought, man, this is the most exciting yes. thing because he and she were both, both wonderful right. people, and that too helped. Yeah, uh, yeah. You had a, you had an opportunity to open your world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I remember the first genuine friendship I had. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood that is was at the time largely homogenous. And um, in middle school, I ran track and um, our track team was a pretty mixed group. And myself and one other girl were two of the fastest hurdlers and we were on the same hurdling team. She handed the baton to me and then I ran the hurdles. And so we became good friends. I mean, we had to learn how to trust each other. This, and we didn't have the language as 12 or 13 year olds to talk about complexities. We were 12 and 13, but we had a friendship in which in our own little pre-adolescent ways, we kind of got close enough to be curious about each other. Yeah. And I, I think about that friendship a lot, like how that probably gave both of us something and sort of, I hope, gave us some opportunity to keep moving outward, to keep moving our circles outward. I, you know, I've misused the word colorblind even recently. And I, you know, thankfully I was called out for it. And I think one of the things we just have to be real with is that these kinds of conversations and undoing it is, is hard. There's gonna be mess ups, we're gonna misstep, we're gonna cry, we're gonna feel bad, we're gonna worry about saying the wrong thing. And, but I think there, you know, this willingness to maybe evolve our language, to evolve our, evolves our thinking mm -hmm. and evolves our doing. And uh, my friend, Dr. Cleve Tinsley, who will join us next week, says, we need to always fall forward. And, and I just love that. You know, we're going to fall, but we need to fall forward. So you, you, you mentioned earlier, like, we already are one. There's that concept uh, in, in nature, in the cosmos, in, in, in reality, that there's unity and diversity. So the more complex and diversified and differentiated things get, the more things are working as a whole. It doesn't deny the differentiation, the diversity, or the complexity. It uses it to become whole. And Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a mystic, a priest, an archaeologist, a Catholic writing about evolution, and he wasn't allowed to publish his work, he wrote, we are one after all. You and I, together we suffer, together we exist, and forever we'll recreate one another. This is really close to what we don't transform, we transmit. Right. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's really true. Yeah. You know how much I love Jim Finley. Yeah. And I heard him in a homily that he gave one time on the scene in the scripture where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples say this. And, and it, it, he said something like this. I, I don't know that I got it. He said, what we can assume in faith is that everything Jesus said to the disciples is a revelation of what God is always saying to us. And whatever Jesus did for the disciples is a revelation of what God is always doing for us. And whatever Jesus asked the disciples to do for one another is what God is always asking us to mm. do for one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You will know that, people will know that you belong to me by the way that you love one another. Yes. And welcome anybody to the table except yeah. the poor and the dispossessed are going to get there before you. Right, yeah. 
And you know, if we don't engage with that, you're, you're, we're, we're, we are left spiritually bereft. Right. You know, if we don't see the wholeness of, of, of everyone, and if we can't sort of sit in the cage and soften our gaze toward one another, we're both left spiritually bereft. Yeah. So uh, if it's okay with you, um, I want to close with a poem. Yeah. From our favorite poet. Our favorite poet, <laughs> Hafiz. Yeah. Um, I, again, publicly thank Christian Afonso for gifting Sherry and me with these wonderful um, Hafiz collections. Yeah. And we read them uh, in, in the morning. Um, you know, our, our desire, what we've been talking about, is to open ourselves to a different kind of future. Open ourselves to the divine presence. Yeah will make that future a possibility. And Hafiz captures it in this poem. Ah, and we, the divine presence, we open ourselves to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Just need to say that. <laughs> well, it, 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 yeah. it, what, what the spiritual truth is, is that when we see the God in each other, yes. that solves the problem. Yeah. That's what, that, I'm convinced this is the secret of Jesus healing ministry is that he saw through whatever a person thought to find them to the real essence. The nugget and, of the nugget of the nugget. Yeah, and yeah. said, when you have faith in what I see in you, you too. you'll experience the wholeness. You too will be amazed. Yes, <laughs> amazed. Yeah. Right, enchanted Yes. and amazed. Yeah. I love yeah. those two words. Yeah. It used to be that when I would wake in the morning, I could say with confidence, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. That was before the seed cracked open. Now Hafiz is certain. There are two of us housed in this body, doing the shopping together in the market, tickling each other while fixing the evening's food. Now when I awake, all the instruments play the same music. God, what love mischief can we do for the world today? I love that. Thanks. That was beautiful. Love that. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Remember that next week we're going to try something really different by having Cleve and Natalie here. Yeah. Here. Here. I don't know the technical <laughs> aspect of how that's going to work out. Working it out. out. We'll, we'll take care of it. <laughs> yeah. Remember, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next Sunday. Thanks. Okay.